0: I'm glad you're here man it's 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 also I'm just glad to be anywhere today tell you the truth Uh, Angie and I were both sick this past week with the flu and uh, brother if you've had the flu man it's it's horrible isn't it I mean it was both of us were sick Angie is probably sicker than I am or I was but uh, let me tell you how bad it is you know I was I was so sick I could hardly get out of bed and then I had to take care of her too Yeah, right, yeah, right. Hey, I'm glad to be here, man. We're, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses here in a little bit. Uh, when when you're a little kid, things happen in your life that uh, I think are imprinted on your brain. You know what I'm talking about? And no matter what happens in life, there, there are bits and pieces of of memories that you have when you were growing up, and I've got all these fragments kind of, kind of floating around in my brain of when I was a kid, uh, but when I was just a little bitty boy, something, something happened in our home and in my life that, uh, man, i tell you, I'll, I'll never forget this story. Uh, I was probably four years old when we moved uh, out to our house out in the country. Uh, Mom and dad grew up on the south side of Midland, and uh, after they got married, they had a, a dream to build a house on the north side of Midland and so they worked hard, and they, they planned and they saved their money and uh, in, the, in the early mid-sixties they were able to uh, see that dream fulfilled and we built a house on number four Keeneland Drive uh, in North Midland, in fact it was outside of the city limits in a little area called Green Hill Harris and terrace, and uh, we were we were literally as far north as you could actually go in Midland, uh, just. Past our street was a huge cotton field, about a 1,000-acre cotton field just north of us. On the east side of our house uh, was another huge cotton field of several hundred acres. Uh, When you turn left onto Keeneland Drive, that's the only way you could turn on it. We owned the, the first three acres on the right side of the street. So the first acre was an empty lot. Uh, We we raised some peach trees on that acre and had a garden and other stuff. Then our house was in the middle acre, and then we owned another acre. And then other people owned acres down the street from us on that side of the street. Uh, But we were the only house on that side. There was a couple of houses across the street from us, one directly across the street that's going to come into play in the story I'm about to tell you. So I was probably four when we built the house out there. Uh, in August, I would have turned five. My sister would have been in school. Uh, we, we were fresh in this house, and man, mom and dad loved the house. It was a great place to live. Uh, out in the country in Midland. Uh, it's one of those houses where you walked in the front door and there was an entry hallway. If you turned to the right, you would go down the long hall to all the bedrooms. If you turned to the left, you'd be in the formal living room. But if you just stayed in this hallway from the doorway, you would end up in the big living room. Then we had a, a dining room area and a kitchen that was all one big room. you kind of visualizing that? Okay, All big one room. Uh, one afternoon, I have no idea what day of the week it was, uh, my dad had come home from, uh, from work at lunch, eating a sandwich. My sister was at school. Dad had left to go back to work, and uh, my parents didn't shut the front door because we had a screen door. Y'all remember screen doors? Yeah? Uh, wooden screen door, and you had one of those because you had a swamp cooler on the rooftop, and I won't get into that story. But anyway, the, the big door was open, the, the screen door was closed. And uh, I, was, I was in the, the big living room area right straight from the front door playing with my stuff that I played with, my box of stuff. And my mom was in the kitchen on the telephone, assuming normal position through the day. My, my dad worked for Southwestern Bell, and uh, he, he had made the longest uh, phone cord known to mankind that was plugged into that uh, kitchen phone. And so literally my mom could walk throughout the house and still be on the phone, connected to that court. I thought that was pretty cool, all right. But anyway, so she's in the kitchen, and, um, and I was there playing in, in, the, in the living room floor, and uh, this man, this big man, walked through our screen door. He opened the screen door, walked into our house and was standing beside me. And I I mean, I'm five years old, but I I can still see this guy in my head, okay? I didn't say anything. I was just kind of staring at him. My mom happened to look up, and she dropped the phone. She recognized the guy months before he had done work on our house, so she knew who he was. She dropped the phone and said, what do you want? And he said something to the effect, I want money. Give me money. You owe me money. Now, Mom knew that we had paid this guy off, and we didn't owe him any money. And so she knew this is is a pretty tense situation, okay? And here's what my quick-thinking little Mama did. She said, I don't have any money in the house with me. Let me run across the street and borrow some money, and I'll give you some money. And so she took off, and she whisked me up. And ran through the door and across the street. They say, those who are watching say, my feet never hit the ground. <laughs> she was sprinting from our house across the street to the neighbor's house who were the Slaters. Uh, Janet Slater had five daughters. A husband who I don't remember his name. He was kind of unimportant because he said yes ma'am to her. <laughs> She had five daughters, uh, a couple of dogs, and a couple of horses. And uh, uh, you know you know the song, A Country Boy Can Survive? Well, this country woman could survive, all right? <laughs> Janet Slater was, let me tell you, there, there have only been like six women in my life that I have been afraid of. <laughs> she was one of them. I was terrified of Janet Slater. She, let me tell you, she... she She could be really scary, I'm telling you. Anyway, somehow or another, Janet saw what was going on at my house. And I I didn't mention this, but when mom ran out the front door, uh, there was a car there, his car, with five other guys standing around it. Okay, so this is a bad situation. She gets across the street, Janet has seen what's happening, and uh, she kind of put two and two together that this is not a good situation, and so Janet Slater met my mother at her front door, and Janet had a friend with her. She, She had stopped by the cabinet and opened the drawer and got her friend Smith & Wesson. I don't remember what kind of handgun it was, it was a revolver. And I'm guessing it was probably a 357 Magnum. It was loaded with six rounds. And Mother quickly explained to Janet what the scenario was and what was going on. And Janet kind of pushed my mom and myself out of the way. And she stepped out on the porch. And she took dead aim at the big guy. And she pulled the hammer back. And she said, listen here, buddy. And then she said a few words that I had never heard before. (laughs) And then she said something to the effect, you need to load up your friends and get out of here and never come back on our street again. And let me tell you, they got in their car and they left. Because you know what? You don't mess with Janet Slater, all right? It's a pretty good story, huh? doesn't end there. A week later, the Midland Police Department arrested that man that stepped into our house. He had approached another man and demanded money from him. The other man would not give him money, and so this man who had stepped into our house killed the other guy. He was one bad dude. We were in a pretty tense situation in my little house in Midland, Texas back in 1965, wouldn't you say? Isn't it funny how you have memories of things and things are stuck into your head? I still remember that even to this day. And, And here's what I remember most of all. I remember the look my mom had on her face when she saw that guy in our living room. She was afraid. And then I can remember in my mind the mission my mama was on. My mama was on a mission. When she dropped that phone and when she whisked me up, my mom was desperate to find deliverance from her dilemma. Now why would you say it like that, Brother Will? Because it fits my sermon for today. And because it was so true. My little mama was desperate to find deliverance from her dilemma. And that segues into the sermon story we have for today. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, Last week I started preaching this little mini-series on a single word that Jesus spoke from the Greek. It takes four English words to translate the one word that Jesus spoke. This phrase that Jesus spoke is found five times in the Gospels. The second time is found here in Matthew chapter 9. In fact, if you'll remember last week, the first time was also found in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, There was one guy who was a paralytic. He He couldn't walk. And so his four friends put him on a stretcher. The room that Jesus was in, the house he was in, was so crowded, they couldn't get their friend in to see Jesus. And so they, they took tiles off the rooftop and lowered their buddy on his stretcher down into the room in front of Jesus, interrupting Jesus' sermon. But what did Jesus do? He healed the man. And he said this word to this man, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And so for a second time in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus spoke that word again, be of good cheer, and we're going to read it here in our story beginning in verse 20. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well that very hour. Isn't that great? So be of good cheer, people. Be of good cheer. Cheer. Your life can be made well today. And dear Jesus, I pray that you would do that for us this morning. As we learn from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, this is not the only account of this story that we have in the Gospels. In fact, Mark and Luke both give us this same story in greater detail. We're studying it out of Matthew's Gospel because Matthew uses this one word phrase from Jesus translated, be of good cheer. But but I challenge you to go home and read Mark and Luke's gospel account of this story because they do give us greater detail into the story. However, we also have an extra biblical source of information about this particular woman in Matthew chapter 9 from a church historian by the name of Eusebius. He wrote a history of the church in A.D. 300. Eusebius tells us this woman in Matthew chapter 9 was from Caesarea Philippi. She had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. That is, for 12 years, nonstop, her body had been flowing with blood. She had been losing blood every day, every moment, for 12 years. And she had spent an entire life savings trying to find a cure... For her hemorrhaging. She went to all known doctors, no cure. She went to all known quacks. (laughs) Because you know what? We will resort to that if we have to. But she had no cure that was found. Her affliction had ruined her life. And basically, Eusebius tells us she had given up all hope. Then she learned of Jesus the Nazarene. And somehow she intuitively and instantly knew that he was the answer to her deepest needs. And so she journeyed to where Jesus was. She snuck up behind Jesus and she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And immediately she was cured. She went home a cured woman. Now, here's something that's fascinating. According to Eusebius, the church historian, at some point after this woman returned home to Caesarea Philippi with the thrilling news of her miraculous healing, the city fathers were so impressed that they commissioned a bronze statue be made of this woman and Jesus Christ. And so this bronze statue stood in front of her house for many years. In fact, it was there during the lifetime of Eusebius. It is the only known statue of Jesus. Can you imagine if they unearthed that statue? Well, that would be the greatest archaeological find of all times because we would have something of what Jesus actually looked like. Let me read you a caption of Eusebius's church history when he talked about this woman in Matthew chapter 9. He said, On a high stone base at the gates of her home stood a bronze statue of a woman on bent knee, stretching out her hands. Opposite to this was another statue of the same material, a standing figure of a man clothed in a a handsome double cloak and reaching his hand out to the woman. This statue, they said, resembled the features of Jesus and was still standing in my own time. I saw it with my own eyes when I stayed in the city. Now, guys, I don't know about you. There, there's a little bit of history buffing me. I, li- I like watching the History Channel, okay? And so when I read something like this out of history that Eusebius wrote in AD 300, it, it makes this story pop to me. It makes this story come alive. Because here's what I know. This is a story about a real woman who had a real need, but she also had a real encounter With our living Lord. And this is a story that we can embrace for ourselves. It is real and valid. And it is full of lessons for every one of us in this room today. So as I studied this passage this past week. I came away with several insights that I'd like to share with you. Could I do that right now? Let, Let me just share these insights I learned from this story. Insight number one is this. Some things... Can drain the life right out of us. Did you know that? Hey, that's pretty profound, isn't it? There are some things in life that can drain the life right out of us. This woman had been losing her life's blood for 12 years. Her affliction, her hemorrhaging was more than an inconvenient disability. It was literally draining the life. Right out of her. Now you think about that. That's scary. That's frightening to know that's happening to you. And then parallel it with what the Bible says. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. Church, this is one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. Mark it down Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Thus we had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that had to be slain for the remission of the people's sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Therefore the animal had to be slain. Its blood had to be applied. And then you fast forward that to the New Testament. In Jesus Christ, His life's blood had to be drained from His body on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Well, in another sense, things happen to all of us that sure can drain the life right out of us. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Well, I'm sure it has. It could be anything from job-related stress. (laughs) Do I see any hands out there? Job-related stress. No staff member needs to raise their hand right now. But I think the rest of us can, you know, we feel it, you know. Maybe it's medical problems you've been dealing with for days or weeks or years. Maybe it's relationship issues that just don't seem to get any better. And you feel the life being drained out of you. I mean, it could be one of a thousand different things. But you know what I'm talking about. Because things happen in life that drain the life right out of us. The patriarch Job of the Old Testament He was beset with more troubles than than most of us could ever imagine. And listen to what Job said. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Have you ever felt that way? That's what happens when the life is being drained out of us. Life events can drain the life right out of us. And literally, that is exactly what is happening to this woman. But then the second part of our story comes into play. Here's the second thing I learned. Number two, when we touch his, him, we touch him. You see our play on words there? But it's true. When we touch his, him, we touch him. This woman wasn't just touching the hem of Jesus' garment. She literally was touching the one who wore the garment. She was touching Jesus. Notice how Matthew put it in verse 20. He tells us that this woman came from behind Jesus. She snuck up from behind him, and she touched the hem of his garment. That is, the very bottom tassel of his garment is what she reached out and touched and then verse 21 says for she said within herself she was talking to herself and she said to herself if only i may touch his garment i shall be made well now guys that's pretty that's something that that really is that's something her thinking is, if, if I could just touch the bottom tassel on his robe that is connected to his back, that is connected to his skin, that is him, I'll be made well. In Bible times, a person's clothing really represented that person. People in biblical days didn't typically have the, the uh, large wardrobes that we have today. I got a buddy in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's a preacher, and, and uh, he, he made a statement one day. He said, he said, I bet I got 300 shirts in my closet. And, uh, and his wife said, you don't. there's no way you have 300 shirts in your closet. He went home and counted them. He came up with 450 shirts that he had in his closet you would probably grossly underestimate the amount of clothing you have in your closet or that you've moved to your attic. You know? But people in biblical days didn't have the extensive wardrobes that we have today. They had one, maybe two garments that they wore every day. And over the course of time... They became identified with those garments. You could see a a figure walking out there and notice from the garment and know who that person was. In fact, the clothing they wear actually absorbed the distinctive odors of their body. For example, Jacob wanted to steal his brother Esau's blessing. And so while his brother was out hunting game for their sick elderly almost blind father Isaac, Jacob put on his brother's clothing and went in and deceived his own father. His father said, Who is that? And Jacob said, Well, it's your oldest son Esau. And he said, Well, come over here. And so he touched his clothing and he smelled the garments. He said, The voice is that of Jacob, but the feel and the smell is that of Esau. And so he tricked his father into getting his brother's blessing by wearing his brother's clothing. Young Joseph in the book of Genesis was known for one garment. That was his coat of what? Many colors. Aaron the high priest was known for his priestly garments. John the Baptist was known by his rough clothing of camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. The two men in Acts chapter 1 were identified as angels because of their bright and shining garments. You you know, to, to some extent, this is still even true today. We have more extensive wardrobes than in biblical times. But we can still tell a great deal about a person by the way he or she dresses. Sometimes it, it, it really reveals a great deal about our character by what we wear or don't. <laughs> Thought I would just throw that in for what it's worth. I'm, I've always been entertained when I go to hospitals. Uh, when I go to a hospital and I'm just dressed in my normal daily wear, whatever I wear, jeans and, and, and shoes and a t-shirt, nobody says anything to me. I can walk through the halls and nobody even acknowledges that I'm there. But if I'm dressed in preacher wear, if I'm wearing a suit with a tie, every person I walk by, hello, how are you today? Hello, sir, how are you today? Kind of brings out a little humor to me. Furthermore, in the Bible, clothing became a metaphor for what is actually inside of us. Psalm 30, verse 11 talks about being clothed with gladness. Man, I I wish some of y'all would put that coat on. Psalm 74.3 says that violence covers the evil man like a garment. Isaiah 61.3 says that God wants to give us the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And Peter tells us to be clothed with humility. Church, also along this same thread, there are several passages in the Bible that use clothing to describe to us the attributes of God Himself. For example, in Psalm 65, two, it says that God, our God, is clothed with power. It's like His undergarment. That's what He wears. Power. Psalms 93 says, He is clothed with majesty, and He girds Himself with strength. Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was glorified. And the Bible says that His clothing became as bright as sunshine, whiter than any cleaner on earth could make them. And then in Revelation chapter 1, it describes Jesus as wearing this long robe going down all the way to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And he is radiating glory like the sun at its noon hour zenith. And so here is Jesus and a crowd of people walking with his robe on. And this lady sneaks up behind him. And she reaches out, and with her finger, she touches the hem of his garment. And as she touched the hem of his garment, this lady literally touched Jesus. For she knew in that instant that Jesus contained all the power she needed to be made well. How do I know that? Well, because of what Mark tells us in his gospel account of this story I told told you I wasn't going to read that passage but let me just fill you in on one of the details that Mark gives us Mark says that here is Jesus and this large entourage of people, people all around him he's actually going to minister to a different place here and there are people bumping into them and him and the disciples and they're moving along with the crowd and all of a sudden Jesus just stopped and said who touched me? y'all remember this? Uh, I remember it in living pictures. Who touched me? And one of the disciples said, Jesus, what do you you mean, who touched you? People are all around you. People are bumping into us left, right, and center. Why why are you asking who touched me? And Jesus said, because healing power has flowed from my body. Wow. Wow. And what did this lady do? She just touched his garment. And it wasn't that she put his hand, her hand, on his back. She touched the bottom tassel of the very bottom piece of the last thread that was dangling <laughs> on his garment. She touched that one thread, and healing power went out of Jesus. That, that brings me to this third observation. We touch him by faith. Because that's what this lady had. She was desperate for deliverance from her dilemma, and she had a whole lot of faith. Isn't that what it's all about, though? Faith? Faith is one of the great subjects of Matthew's gospel. In fact, let me just read you a few verses from the gospel of Matthew talking about faith, because it's important to our point this morning. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, When the Roman centurion came to Jesus, trusting Jesus to heal his servant, Matthew says, When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And Jesus is describing a centurion Roman soldier. Someone who historically wasn't known for their faith or their religion. But Jesus is saying... I've never met anybody with that kind of faith. That's pretty impressive. I'm kind of thinking, wow, I wonder if Jesus ever thinks that about me. And then I go to Matthew chapter 8 verse 26 when when the disciples panicked in the storm, Jesus said to them, "You have little faith. Why are you so afraid?" I know Jesus has said that about me. <laughs> yeah. And then in Matthew chapter 14, in another storm on the Sea of Galilee, we read that Jesus came walking on the water. Remember that story? And Peter in the boat, seeing it, he he thought, man, I can do that. And so he jumped out of the boat. He was actually treading water with Jesus until he took his eyes off the Savior and on the waves. And what happened? He sunk like a weight. And Jesus reached out his hand to him and caught him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Then Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, Jesus encountered a Canaanite woman who begged him to heal her daughter. And Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And then in the next chapter, the disciples asked Jesus why they had had been stymied about casting out a demon. And Jesus said to them, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Church, i got to tell you, the the answer really is faith. The answer is faith. If you want God to work in your life to change your heart, to heal you, it all comes down to faith. The answer is faith is faith. It's amazing to me, just in these verses we read in Matthew, you either got it or you don't. You're either fleshing it out or you're holding it in. Do you have it? The Bible says that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And you know what? That's what it comes down to. Are you trusting Jesus? Are you living day by day? With faith in Him. Do you trust Him for the little things? Let me tell you, you'll never be able to trust Him when the going gets tough and in the real hard issues of life if you're not trusting Him in the little things that are day by day things. And make no mistake about it, church. Jesus is very observant. And Jesus is very concerned about whether or not we are trusting Him with the draining problems of life, He knows and notices the measure of our faith. Well, this woman had faith. If I could just touch his clothes. And so she did. The fourth thing to notice about this story is that when we touch him by faith, he imparts healing. Now, I know I just kind of said that, but do you grasp the meaning of that? When we touch him by faith, it kicks in. When we express faith on our part, he does what only he can do. When we do what we're supposed to do, that is trust by faith, then he kicks in and does what only he can do. And it is amazing what he can do. He has promised to heal us body, soul, and spirit. That's what he's promised to do, to heal us body, soul, and spirit. But I think it's important for you to realize that there are three different kinds of healing. There's immediate healing and gradual healing. And then thirdly, there's ultimate healing. Sometimes God heals us immediately. And that's pretty awesome when he does that. I've known people who were miraculously healed of a physical disease or of illness. And and I mean, they had a cancer one day and they go back to the doctor the next day and the cancer's gone. And the doctor says, there's only one explanation for this. It was a miracle. (laughs) Well, God can do that. You act like you don't believe it. He can. And he does it. I've also known people who were alcoholic or drug-related addicted, and the very moment they came to Christ, their addiction left. And they were freed from it. I do know some people like that. I told the first service people, uh, while Angie and I were out of the country, my Aunt Pat Cates died. It's my dad's older sister. Uh, she, Aunt Pat was very instrumental in, in my young life. She was my CTS teacher, one of my Sunday school teachers. Uh, she, uh, she coached our Bible tic-tac-toe team that we went to the national with. And, and I love my Aunt Pat. Uh, she was very instrumental in getting our church, the Westside Free Will Baptist Church in Midland, started. Uh, it actually kind of started in their home. And, and uh, her and Aunt, Uncle Harold uh, kind of gave birth to that church. And so she, she was real special to me. Uh, years ago, she, she told me, she said, William, when I die... You're going to do my funeral, and uh, she she told me that dozens of times throughout her life. And uh, just about a month ago, she was in the hospital, really sick. And I called her and was talking to her, and she said, "Now you know you're doing my funeral." And I said, "Yes, ma'am. Any way possible, I'll, I'll sure enough do it." And while we were out of the country, I was just praying that you know, please, Lord, let her let her live until I get back home. Being selfish about it, but she died while we were away, and uh, I was kind of in a dilemma because we were out of the country and. And uh, she had asked, and I had said yes, but I couldn't couldn't fly back. And so, aren't you thankful for technology? Angie Angie videoed me in our motel room, and I I spoke on behalf of my Aunt Pat and told the stories that she wanted to tell. and, And we text messaged that to a young man in Midland, Texas, and he was able to project it on the screen at the funeral home. And I actually got to preach part of my Aunt Pat's funeral. Isn't that pretty cool? Isn't that cool? She, she had a, yeah, you can clap about that. That's pretty cool. See, that's something Double D can do for us up there. So I'm thankful for him. When, when I was a little boy, uh, we'd always go over to my Aunt Pat's house. And I, I can remember noticing on the top of her refrigerator was a pack of cigarettes. And uh, one day I asked her about those cigarettes and she told me the story. She said, when I, got, when I got saved, the Lord really convicted me about smoking. And she said, William, I was a chain smoker. I'd, I'd have another one lit when the first one was going out. She just, I would smoked all the time. I was addicted to them. But God really convicted me about it and told me I needed to stop smoking. So she said, I took that pack of cigarettes and I prayed over it. And I asked God to take the, the hunger and the addiction of those cigarettes away from me. And she said, I put them on top of the refrigerator. And after I dropped them there, I lost the craving. I haven't had a desire for another cigarette. And I leave that pack of cigarettes up there as a reminder and as a testimony of the power of God. That's pretty cool. You know what? I know a lot of people, immediately, immediately that addiction is gone. Immediately they've been healed. But I know of other people who experience not an immediate healing, but a gradual healing. And sometimes it's long, (laughs) and it's drawn out, and it's painful. But you know what? God has promised to heal us. Mentally, physically, spiritually. And He's going to heal us. It may be gradual And then you've got to also understand that sometimes we have to trust God for His ultimate healing. You say, well, preacher, what's that? Sometimes God is not going to heal us until we get to heaven. And that will be ultimate healing. But He's going to do it. That's the way miracles are. You see, when Jesus performed His miracles in the New Testament, He was not telling us that He would always perform a miracle for us. And don't go reading your New Testament and think that just because Jesus performed miracles that He's going to do something exactly like that for you because that's not what He promised. He did promise this. He did promise that He possesses all authority over everything in the world and that nothing is impossible for Him. That's what He's promised with the miracles. I I think it was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that Jesus... Turn the water into wine in John chapter 2, but he actually does that all the time. He sends the rain from heaven that's absorbed into the ground, that's drawn up through the vine, that fills the grape with rich red fluid, which is crushed into, crushed into grape juice and then ferments into wine through the natural process that God has put into this natural world. In John chapter 2, Jesus simply accelerated the process. <laughs> And sometimes God accelerates the process and gives us immediate physical or emotional or spiritual healing. Sometimes it's gradual. And sometimes it's ultimate. But guys, here's the promise. You never have to put your head on the pillow at night worried about the condition of your life when your life is in His hands. Because He can take care of you, man. And so when we touch him, power goes out from him to heal us. And because of that, the fifth observation is, we can be of good cheer. <laughs> Isn't that great? We can be, here's a good translation for this, you can be happy, happy, happy. Huh? Some things can drain the life right out of us. Amen? But when we touch the hem of his garment, we are actually touching him. And when we touch him by faith, power flows out of him and into us. And because of that, we can be of good cheer. Now, right before I close, I want you to imagine one more time our lady, our bleeding lady. Who's desperate for deliverance from her dilemma. Can you imagine having a hemorrhage that lasts 12 years of your life? And that every single day of your life you have been losing blood? For 4,383 days this lady had been bleeding. That's 144 months of a solid blood flow, 624 weeks, 105,192 hours of her life, she suffered. For 12 years, she bore not only the physical, but also the emotional and psychological baggage of being unclean and untouchable. The Old Testament makes it clear. That a woman who has an issue of blood is ceremoniously unclean. She can't touch anything or no one can touch her. So see this for what it is. Twelve years, no hugs, no kisses, no intimacy from her husband. For twelve years she could not prepare her family's food. For 12 years, she could do no work in her house. For 12 years, she could not be a wife. For 12 years, she could not be a mother. For 12 years, she sat in an isolated house staring at the walls. And for all intents and purpose, this lady was as good as dead. She had spent everything she had looking for a cure. And for 12 years, nothing. She knew she was dying. (laughs) But then one day, as Eusebius says, she heard of Jesus the Nazarene. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. She found where he was. She snuck up behind him. She reached out and in faith she touched the hem of his garment and power went out of his body and changed her. Guys, this is not just a story to read about. This is a faith to believe in. Do you see what's happening here? This lady's life had been transformed. The one thing she could not change, Jesus changed just like that. From death, she had life. From no hope, she was a living hope. I don't think he had to tell her, woman, be of good cheer. Because she was radiating with happiness. I just pray and hope that you came today on your own mission. You're on a mission today just like my mama was at number four Keeneland Drive. You're on a mission to find deliverance out of your dilemma. And if you are, why don't you just whisk up all of your problems and run to Jesus? He's got what it takes to handle the problem. And it's not a 357 Magnum, it's his blood and his forgiveness and his love.